What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Well, we're really excited to be joined by Dr. Megan Humphreys today, um, who's going to talk both a little bit about her work and, um, you know, personal path to research, and then also about a really unique program that um, we have locally in St. Louis that introduces research careers to high school students. So, um, Meg, do you want to give a, you know, short intro? Yeah, so I'm an assistant teaching professor at University of Missouri, St. Louis, and I'm in the biology department. Um, and uh, my research is focused primarily on how interactions between different organisms out in nature generates diversity uh, in the two groups. And so I focus mainly on interactions between birds and their malaria parasites. And I do this work uh, in the West Indies, which is uh, the island archipelago um, stretching across the Caribbean. Um, and what we do there is actually a genetics approach. So we go catch birds and um, draw a little bit of blood from under the wing. The birds are fine. Uh, They go on their way as soon as we're done with them. Um, But then we extract that uh, DNA from the blood. Um, And the cool thing about these malaria parasites is that if a bird is infected, we get the parasite DNA as well as the bird DNA. Um, So uh, I'm managing a collection that's been going for about 50 years, um, and we have about 40,000 birds sampled there. Uh, and, and they're all across these islands. So using that contemporary genetic information, we can reconstruct the histories of both the birds and their parasites and try to understand how have interactions between these two caused uh, new lineages of birds to appear or go extinct. Uh, and on the other hand, the same for parasites. So it's kind of, it falls kind of under ecology and evolution. That's really cool. <laughs> Thanks. Um, what excites you about research careers? Like that's really cool research. That's very different than what I do that it maybe it sounds even more exciting. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think the biggest thing is that I like um, kind of discovering things, even if it's like minor things about, you know, how about maybe the birds on one side of an island are totally genetically different than the birds on the other side of the island. And why would that be? What's, what's driving these differences? And how does that influence these things over evolutionary time periods? Um, so I kind of love discovery. I also have always loved nature. Um, and I was kind of a, a feral child. <laughs> uh, spent a lot of time outside. Um, have always loved animals. Um, but then, you know, as I was kind of coming of age um, in the late 90s and early aughts, uh, climate change became like this horrifying specter in front of us. Um, and so uh, this is one of the the reasons that I really got involved in ecology and evolution specifically is because I want to be able to help, um, you know, understand the world and how it functions and make predictions about what we can expect and how we can make things better. 
So it sounds like you had an interest kind of at an early or earlier age. And so how did you like, you know, when did you know, I'm going to go get this PhD and do this research? How did like, how did that happen? <laughs> it took quite a while, actually. So um, I just as an undergrad, I went to the kind of the small regional school that was like in my hometown. Um, and we did have a master's program there, but we didn't have a PhD program. And so I really had like almost no exposure to to PhDs. I was aware of graduate school, but that was kind of the extent of it. Um, but I had uh, a couple of really amazing professors um, that I'm still in contact with who encouraged me to, to get out and get involved in kind of undergraduate projects that um, the faculty were running. Uh, and that was really interesting to me. It was kind of getting acquainted with science as a process, you know, like becoming all right with failure <laughs> and optimizing protocols endlessly. Um, so that got me started. And then um, uh, it just so happened actually that the ecology textbook we used as an undergrad was written by Bob Rickliffs here at UMSL. Um, so his name had been in my mind for forever. Um, and so I did a master's at my local school and I applied to a, a whole bunch of PhD programs and I did a horrible job at it. <laughs> I didn't get accepted anywhere. Um, so I didn't even, I think I maybe got one interview. It was really bad. I had no guidance at all um, um, because I didn't know to seek it. Um, so I took some time off um, and traveled and kind of grew a little bit. Um, and when I came back, I moved to St. Louis with the sole intention of doing a PhD with Bob Rickliffs. Um, and I met with him. <laughs> I applied. I was rejected. Um, but he, uh, you know, saw some promise in me, um, so encouraged me to apply again. He helped me do a better job at it, um, and I was finally accepted that that next round. So it was kind of a long and winding path. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great story, and I I think to me it highlights like several different things, but kind of that. Um, I think it's not an uncommon story, right? Like a lot of us have these thoughts about what we want to do and then don't have kind of the right guidance, don't know, necessarily know how to get there. Um, but then the persistence is like, if you can do that going into a program, then like the likelihood that you can you know, be successful in a career where um, failure is part of the landscape, right? <laughs> yeah. like, no matter what we're doing. Um, yeah. and so being able to kind of I think persist in that, I think, so I don't know, I, um, that's inspiring, I think. And I, and like, just yeah. that courage to like, I'm going to go to St. Louis and do this thing. Um, yeah. I moved here specifically to work with Bob. Um, and I'd emailed him a few times and he was, he was encouraging, but, uh, there was definitely nothing <laughs> promised. <laughs> That's a, such a cool story though. Like I know hearing how cool your research is now, and it seems to be going really successfully, but I think a lot of people see, scientists and people with PhDs as like, you know, somehow you have arrived there, but not realizing that necessarily, I think many of us at least went through some pathway that included some failure. Totally. Um, yeah. Applying multiple times, not applying in the right way, not figuring out who that person is that could help you navigate that path. Cause I, I failed the first or maybe failed isn't quite the right word, but I didn't get in the first time I applied. Um, because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, um, it's, I didn't it's realize there's like a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, know. there's a whole like hidden ecosystem here um, that, from the outside, is almost impenetrable. Kelly, you've talked about that before, kind of like the hidden <laughs> curriculum. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking about that, and you know, 
so like thinking about kind of the work that went into that process for you. And so then for how many folks are, you know, like potentially could be great in research careers or have that interest and, and miss those, don't have the opportunities or don't have those connections or don't have, you know, don't know kind of how to find that information. So, yeah. 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 It's, it, I think in a lot of cases, students would do fine if we could just give them a chance, you know, that was all I was looking for was just give me a chance. And I, I promise if you let me in the door, I won't let you down. Just let me in. Yeah, I think, so this is, um, I'm going to probably jump around here, but so one of the other reasons that, um, we invited Meg here today was because she has run a really cool program for high school students, um, to kind of be exposed to research careers. And so I, I, you know, um, wonder if this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about that. I think, um, yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit about the STARS program and, and kind of the goal, what it is? Yeah, um, so it's it's a, a, a program that's actually older than me. <laughs> uh, when it started, it started in the 70s um, and it was initially funded by NSF, um, the National Science Foundation. And it was originally envisioned, uh, like the acronym says, uh, which is students and teachers as research scientists. And so it was originally uh, envisioned to have these two components where high school students would come get actual research, novel research experience in an academic lab or in the field. Um, and high school teachers would come and do a similar program and learn kind of pedagogical approaches to, to teaching research. Um, and like a kind of introduction to research for students. Um, but the, the teachers part never really took off. We did have some teachers through the years um, uh, join us, but, but really it was the student aspect that just um, was really successful. So uh, in recent years, we're focused just on that. Um, we typically take about a hundred students per year. We work with five institutions or there are five institutions um, involved. That's uh, UMSL, where I am, and WashU, where you are, uh, and SLU and University uh, UHSP. They just changed their name, uh, Health Health Sciences and College, or similar. <laughs> they just recently changed that name, so my apologies. I probably messed it up. Um, uh, and then the last one is the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. Um, and among all of those places, we usually have around 40 or 50 um academics or researchers in some capacity that mentor those students. Um, and so the, the basic idea is students have six weeks that they are, are physically with these mentors uh, and they conduct some research. And over the course of that, uh, they're gonna write a, a, a scientific, a formal scientific manuscript. They have a separate mentor on that writing part. Um, and then uh, at the end, they'll give a presentation over their findings. Um, kind of, it's open to the public, but it is mostly STARS program uh, students who come. Um, and then as well, kind of running parallel over the six weeks, they are exposed to invited speakers um, two days a week on our UMSL campus. And uh, we usually have 25 or 30 speakers. And these, uh, the speakers are on the one hand to kind of bust into that hidden curriculum of um, applying to schools, finding suitable schools, the ins and outs of financial aid, um, and then secondly, it's to expose them to lots of interesting research careers. Um, something like 95% of STARS applicants will put that they want to go uh, be a physician when they are finished. Uh, and so as an ecologist, <laughs> I take it personally. 
Um, so uh, one of the things that I have really worked to do uh, in the couple of years I've been directing is to broaden their um, broaden their perspectives about what kind of research careers are out there. Um, so lots of those speakers um, are, are kind of angled at that. But it's a lot to do in six weeks, but um, we managed to get it done. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, you know, both like incredible and um, a lot and full, right? Like busy. Um, I actually, I didn't know that, the, I didn't understand. I don't think the high school teachers component. So that's super interesting. Um, but I think, yeah, that's a lot. And so you you said that um, their mentors are kind of across institutions. And so do students get to like, pick where they might go or what what they're interested in and yeah so we do try to match students based on their interests when they fill out the application one of the things that they'll do is read all of the project descriptions from all of the research mentors um, and then as part of the application they'll give me a ranking of the top 10 um, and so then uh, when the applications come in they get sent out to a review team now we get, uh, we rank the applicants and moving down the applicant list, we place them with their top choice uh, lab. And so if you're further down the list, you get sort of shifted further down on your preferences. Uh, we are almost always able to match with somebody on their list. Um, but I can think of one student last uh, last summer who didn't, um, didn't get matched. It was a waitlisted student who got brought in um, but they they turned out um, they were happy with the experience when it was said and done. This sounds like such a cool program, like, but just so much that happens in six weeks. Like, I wish that I could write a paper and have it out the door in six weeks from now. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the things. So as uh, each Friday, as part of the program, um, at noon, they have to send their writing mentor uh, the component of their manuscript that they've worked on that week. And so in week one, it's just a sentence. We want them to articulate what their project is uh, and what it's seeking. Um, and then they do, you know, the introduction, then they'll do the methods. And as results start coming in, they will draft that. Um, and by the end, they're, you know, just kind of polishing and wrapping up conclusions as long as they stay on schedule. Um, but they have those writing mentors who work very closely with them uh, and they give them feedback on, on their manuscript. Um, component, the students will submit it Friday at noon and mentors will have it back to them Monday at noon. Um, so they have that following week to kind of build on it. And so I, I think earlier when we were talking, you mentioned like students being able to, so graduate students being able to participate as mentors in the program. So not only are these students getting this wonderful experience, but um, graduate students are getting that kind of mentorship experience as part of that program as well. Is that yeah, yeah, and I think um, I, I think it's really beneficial for graduate students uh, and and actually for the high school students because, like myself as a high school student, I didn't really understand what graduate students were <laughs> or like what their role was, um, and so you know they kind of they're already getting acquainted with this hierarchy, which is exceedingly complex in the academy. Um, so so they're working with people, you know, with graduate students, with mentors, um, and some of our. Our writing mentors are actually professionals. Uh, we've got one at Bayer and a few other institutions around. Um, so they get lots of contacts and lots of different kind of realms. Um, and then the graduate students, on the other hand, get the benefit of, of learning how to mentor folks who really often are starting at square one. Um, that, you know, they don't have an undergraduate biology curriculum under their belt, for example. 
Um, so the graduate students learn how to work with students uh, coming from, uh, you, you know, where they are, really. One thing that I'm just, sorry, Kelly. Go ahead. Um, I'm just kind of amazed because it sounds like such a great program that really helps high school learners prepare for what the whole world of possibilities could be. I know, I didn't really know what really the breadth and scope that healthcare, that science, like that those careers could really have. And I'm just wondering, and I apologize if this is a really basic question, but how do you get the applicants? Uh, we rely heavily on high school counselors. Um, so UMSL has uh, advanced credit agreements with several of our regional high schools. Uh, so we lean heavily on those folks. And then I also just cold call high school counselors um, in the spring and tell them, We've got this program. We'd love your students to apply. Um, and we, we uh, you know, we have this long legacy. So lots of, of the kind of historically well-represented schools are still very well-represented because uh, they kind of have that institutional knowledge. Um, but I do cold call and I try to get the word out a little bit more. Sounds like it's pretty time consuming then to, you know, make sure that everybody is well-informed and has an opportunity to, to apply, hopefully. What do you think has helped make the program so successful and sustainable over the years? It sounds like it's really going strong. Yeah, I think um, having strong commitment from our partner institutions, um, because it's no small feat really to send a bunch of minors to university campus research labs. Um, so, uh, and every institution has their own set of guidelines and their own documentation. Um, and so, uh, I rely on the institutions to help. Um, I also rely on my own institution. So, um, I typically have a one undergrad, uh, student who helps me, um, kind of filter emails actually is that, that student's main, main job. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's it's leaning on people, really, is how you get it done. <laughs> Counting on people. Work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like those are some challenges. Are there other kind of key challenges to just the implementation of the program or like finding um, good mentors, things like that? Yeah, um, mentors, not so much. I, I we um, the more mentors that learn about the program, the more interest there is. Um but I think one of the main problems that we have is that the cost of the program to students uh, excludes the majority of, of students in our area. Um, and so to reverse that, we need more support, <laughs> financial support. So right now, uh, well, in the last few years, I should say, we've been able to, uh, to support 20% of the students on full scholarships, um, but that's not, not enough and it's not um our student our star student body does not represent our our area um so yeah i don't know if it would be like grant funding i know in the past um some of the universities have contributed financially like um, um i don't know if it was a matching arrangement or what but um yeah that's one of our biggest issues is is how do we get folks who can't afford three thousand dollars for a summer experience um because it's 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 a real limiting factor. Yeah, and I think thinking about kind of you know what I what I what it sounds like I've heard you describe as like the mission of the program, 
that kind of exposure piece is a big piece of that. So, um, yeah. Is, uh, this is also like a kind of similar logistic question, but then does that tuition cover like your role as being director of the program? Yeah, so um, from a financial perspective, STARS is, is its own separate entity. Um, okay. So it's funded by uh, student tuition dollars. Um, and then uh, that money pays the director and my assistant. Um, all of the PIs get some compensation. Um, that is the research mentors uh, and all of the writing mentors also get compensation. Uh, we also provide meals um, uh, two days a week during the program. We provide um, bus passes for the students to go from UMSL to their other campuses. And uh, we buy them a, an embroidered uh, white lab coat at the end. So they get like coated, you know, it's very special. Um, and then um, uh, we try to have, you know, a fun thing or two when we can. We haven't been able to do that so much since the pandemic, but historically we have taken them uh, to the symphony or to the Cardinals game or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 all funded by uh, the tuition dollars from from those applicants. From the not applicants, but from from registered students. So I'm just curious. Do you find that um, it builds longer term relationships between like students and the mentors they worked with, or? Um, yeah, yeah. In a lot of cases, I hear uh, I hear back that students have persisted with the project all the way up to publication, which is you know a, a big moment for them. Um, so I hear about that or I'll, I'll alternatively hear it from the mentors, um, you know, that they're still working with such and such from the 2021 program or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it is a it's a good contact to keep. Uh, they can follow that research all the way through to the end. They don't have to just limit to their six weeks experience. Cool. I'm also just curious. So you said like 90 percent come in wanting to be physicians. Do you feel like yeah. broadening their their um, kind of exposure and those presentations is, does anybody change their mind? It's so <laughs> I would love to know that. Um, and I, I have actually considered implementing a poll after like a post course survey type thing to ask them, you know, how, how are you feeling about your different career options? Um, one thing that I have heard from them though, and this is kind of anecdotal, but uh, we have um, an optometrist uh, here at OMSL who is working with NASA to understand why some astronauts go blind in space. And um, because it, it's something to do with gravity and the optic nerve gets um, sort of kinked. Um, and so they're interested in, in these kinds of questions. And that particular question <laughs> will light students up. So it's like, it's a bridge, right, between a physician sort of research and, and something else, um, this exobiology field. So um, I find it is uh, students seem most interested when we can kind of connect uh, some way to them or to to medicine in some way. That makes sense. I, I think like it's really interesting how you've developed this network of collaborations between different universities that don't necessarily interact that much all the time. And I was wondering if you have any advice or ideas or if for people that are trying to develop collaborative relationships, either with other other universities in their region, or if they want to build a pathway program like this, um, it seems like an awesome opportunity, but where would, where would I get started? 
Yeah, I think the place to start would be um, to find good mentors. Um, because once, you know, like I, we kind of do the work of, of filtering through the students and placing them. Um, but once they go into that lab or onto that campus, they're wholly out of my hands and I can't control the experience that they have there. Um, so having good mentors who are giving these students really good experiences is like the most crucial thing. Um, after that, after you have good mentors, it's just probably a matter of spreading the word. Um, you want to make sure that the institutions are all fine with it, though. You know, after COVID, um, having minors, minors plus COVID issues um, was is really, really tough. It's been real tough. Um, so you want to make sure that that you can be in compliance with whatever institutional regulations are there um, and that whatever those regulations are, are not going to be so onerous that um, that the ball will get dropped. Because that would be like the worst case scenario is that you would bring students to a program and then they can't get into the campus for some bureaucratic issue. Um, so yeah, just sort of ensuring that that minors can be there, how they have to be there, and having good mentors, I think, is the, the ticket. Are you from, are there other, like, similar programs, either, you know, locally or or, or not, that you are familiar with? Um, nothing exactly like this that I'm aware of. We have um, a kind of smaller grant-funded version of this program, actually, here at UMSL, um, and it's called CLIMB, but it's not quite the same thing because this is aimed specifically at those historically marginalized communities. And so instead of uh, requiring a, a tuition or, or some kind of cost, um, the CLIMB program actually pays the students as though they're interns. Uh, and they work 40 hours a week um, doing real research. They draft a paper uh, at the end of their summer. Um, and so that model I, I like a lot. Uh, I think that swings that door open, you know, like we were talking earlier about this this financial barrier and and just general access. Um, something like CLIMB goes into these high schools and recruits them where they are. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of students can't do it, not because, not only because they can't afford the tuition, but because they might have to work over the summer to support their families. And so this um, gets both of those things taken care of. And, and CLIMB is brand new. Uh, it's only been going for a few years, but that kind of model I think is is the future. That has to be where we go. Yeah, I was just having that same thought, like, you know, the not only you have to pay, but then not being able to earn anything in, in that summer also is is such an obstacle for, for a lot of students. So that's, that's ex awesome, that's excellent. Um, yeah. That is so cool. I just put the, uh, the link in the chat here and I'll make sure that we link to both STARS and the CLIMB program. Um, on our website as well. That is just really cool. I'm wondering if in this process of STARS and recruiting students and connecting with other schools and, and uh, your knowledge of the CLIMB program as well, have there been any lessons learned that we should bear in mind if we're thinking about developing pathway programs? Um, gosh, there must, or, there must be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think... Um, Having somebody help you with the flurry of communications, um, you know, you're going to need to set up a, a, an email account for your program. And then that email account is going to get bombarded <laughs> at all times from all different directions, from administrators, from parents, from counselors, from prospective students. Um, 
So remembering to keep up with that uh, and having somebody help you with that is a good one. Um, but I would say probably my my biggest hurdle has been these institutional guidelines for getting students on campus. If I would give you any single piece of advice, it would be get that information like at least six months before you need a student anywhere near your campus um, and make sure you know exactly what has to be done. Because often, um, you know, your the PI needs to fill out a, a portion and the, the student's parents will need to fill out a portion. Uh, and that will have to go through some series of signatures uh, at the institution as well. Uh, so, and, and actually finding out what that information is, is not always straightforward because um, different sort of groups will control different aspects. So like from, from the, the medicine stuff, we need, we need the HIPAA waivers. We also need the minors on campus. We need the COVID protection, but we also need lab safety. Um, and, and these are all from different groups on campus. And there's probably not a single person who, who knows all of those things. So the onus is on the director to seek out every possible rule you might break and ensure that you're not about to break that rule. <laughs> and it sounds a lot like not just like building some familiarity with the institutions, right? Like getting to know them, but then also building some relationships with key people at those institutions, building some trust. Definitely. Are really yeah. Yeah, the, the uh, I, I forget, the legal office at every university is like on my, my quick dial. Um, the legal counsel, I think, is what most folks call it. But but yeah, you want to check in with those folks, make sure that, you know, there's nothing that's about to get you in trouble uh, or get students in trouble. You know, you just got to really be careful about that stuff. And, and each institution will have its own stuff. So you got to go one by one. Yeah, this has been, um, I think, exciting. First of all, just like I think learning about um, everything from your work to these programs. What are we not asking you that we should be asking you about this? Um, Any kind of final thoughts? I I don't probably, uh, maybe the only thing I would say is that uh, these kinds of things go much better if you have a team team. Um, kind of like not a single, the buck stops here. I mean, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen, don't get me wrong, um, but you also, uh, it's a it's a big lift for a single person. So I would maybe consider a team, team approach. Sounds like perhaps institutional support is key, those kinds of multiple, multi-institution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think, you know, we're we're really excited to, I think, just think about kind of, non-traditional uh, paths and approaches to research. And I would consider this that um, we're hoping to speak with one other person who um, runs like a longer term research class for high school students. And it's not this kind of oh. research experience, but it's this, you know, um, like two or three year program that teaches students how to engage with research. And so I think just thinking about these different kind of less traditional modes or ways, especially when we think about engaging underrepresented folks in, in research careers, we really have to think outside of, you know, what we've, what we always do, because it's not effective. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think this is really great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today. 
Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. And more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifyingresearch.com.